Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preacher's contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, and welcome back to Godsplaining. I'm Father Gregory Pine, joined here by Father Bonaventure Chapman in our usual Correct. places, doing our usual things, and correct statements are being proffered here on God's Planning. So we're off to a truthful start. Um, Father Bonaventure, keep us rolling. How are things in Washington, D.C.? Oh, not bad. It's, uh, I don't know what time is, when is this episode? Uh, it's live, so it's, um, it's fall now, <laughs> I think. Or is it Advent? I forget when this is. Whatever. Um, but anyway, fall is a great time in D.C., and uh, there's a t- beautiful tree in our cloister, in our cloister, that has uh, the the leaves turn kind of red, as most trees do in the fall, I suppose. Um, but for the colorblind impaired, we don't always get to see that, but I can see this one. And it's gorgeous, and it tr- becomes not only turns a red color, but also gets this kind of leathery feel to it. And so I, I, I went out today and got to feel the leaves a bit, because they start to feel like death. Uh, and it reminds you about that. So I love that. That's fantastic. Wait a second. You are green-red or red-green colorblind, aren't you? It's something like that. Yeah, it's confusing. I'm not. It's about sometimes I can I can see some re, green, some reds, that kind of stuff. I think it's colored dysthymia, actually, or something. I'm not sure. But okay. Anyway, I don't so see the, the leaves, same things that you see. Yeah. If the leaves go from green to red, what does that look like? Because you know most people think colorblind, so you see everything in black and white. What's it like being stuck in the 1930s on the set of the Jazz Singer? But it's not like that. It's different than that. It's actually more dangerous, especially when you're driving at night. So phenomenologically, what's it like to see leaves turn? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, basically how I've seen them, um, <laughs> they go from green to red. I mean, I mean, what I'm interested to know is like, what, yeah, what, what, what colors you see there, you know, I mean, we don't get need to get into secondary qualities and whether they exist or not. Right. And that there aren't really any colors anyway, there's just surfaces. Um, but so it's not like, it's not even like, what's the right color that you're, I'm going to see in heaven when I get my eyes correctly, if, if that sort of thing. It's like, what colors do you see given the fact of surface undulations and the amount of cones you have? Um, but I think it looks something like yours, I suspect, you know, okay. I, I just, I can, I can tell because, uh, I know there's different things because I don't have as many shades, I think. I think I'm just like deficient in some shades. So I think people see a lot more when they look at a tree in the fall. There's a lot more things going on there, whereas for me, there's less. Um, there's less kind of stuff. That's my suspicion. So what you might differentiate between certain things, like, ooh, different oranges and different reds, and you have all these sort of silly n- names like crimson and things like this. It's for me, it's a little, they're, they're a lot similar. Like, they're just, in a sense, if you think of, like, colors going through different doors, some of my doors are closed, so everything has to go through, like, the red door, whereas it might have uh. to go through, like, fuchsia or crimson or so you'd ha- you have more doors that the colors can enter through other guys just have a squeeze through that's my suspicion i don't know if that's true so i'm like an ordinary mountainside and you're like a terraced mountainside that has been etched out stepwise exactly goats <laughs> are doing better on this one than yours yeah <laughs> and the question is would you ever take a vacation to watch leaves change and if the answer to that is no is it because you are categorically against such vacations or because you couldn't possibly appreciate it in the other in the way that other people can oh man a leaf watching vacation i think no. people do that don't they so people like drive with changing strange leaves? stuff yeah i could see that i mean i <laughs> not i mean like watching salmon swim upstream is cool too i don't know i mean yeah that's nature-ish i guess i mean yeah if someone gave me like a pumpkin spice latte i think i might do that yeah nice hey, that's um, a great response 
But I don't see um, green, like greens and browns don't do anything for me, though. So it's more like the great part of fall is tr- trees actually start looking beautiful. Whereas I think for uh, most people, trees look beautiful. They just look differently beautiful. But for me, since I don't see greens and browns that well, um, they just don't look beautiful until fall. And all of a sudden you're like, I will see you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, but folks, that's, if that's you th- fall reflections. Okay. Well, I was going to say, if you thought that this was a dead end introductory conversation, you were wrong because it was very purposive or purposive, depending on whether you're presenting an academic paper in a British context. Um, oh, rather. Because uh, we are about to talk about the films of one Terrence Malick, who is the master mm. of the nature shot. Because if you've ever watched any of his movies, which mm. we'll get to, some of which were realized in the 1970s, um, his, his nature shots are especially ageless. Uh, so we're going to get then into a little bit as to why. Actually, we may never touch on that again, but that's a teaser. Mm. Um, so Terrence Malick, for those who haven't heard of him, Father Bonaventure, could you give us like a little postage? No, what does Father Thomas Joseph say? He always says like a, um, oh, yeah. a, a postcard version of Terrence Malick. Postcard version. Life, yeah, he's love. A, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Sure, Terrence Malick is a man um, who exists uh, <laughs> and generally in America. Um, that's the most important parts about him. What's really fascinating about him, other than that, uh, those sort of central qualities, American man, are uh, is that he is super, super smart, um, at least trained super, super smart. So not just like independently, but actually institutionally trained. I mean, he did a BA in philosophy at Harvard University. Some people have heard of that. And then he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. And he studied under, so not just there like kicking around, but studied under their, under Gilbert Ryle, who many of our listeners will know from his famous uh, 1950s concept of mind book, which kind of really changed the landscape of analytic philosophy. Um, and Gilbert Ryle was a uh, kind of a lead dog, um, analytic Oxford ordinary language thinker, and really, really changed that. And so Malick studied under him, uh, studying under, I'm working on Husserl and Brentano and some phenomenologists, but especially Heidegger. In fact, although he didn't complete his degree, his DPhil, at Oxford, uh, because he got into a fight uh, uh, with Gilbert Ryle, which you have to be smart enough to be able to know what you're talking about if you're going to get a fight with him. Uh, although he did have lots of fights with lots of people, but that's a different episode. Um, Terence Malick translated uh, from, so from Wesen des Grundes, so from the, the essence of, of reasons or grounds, one of Heidegger's books, his first book right after his magnum opus, uh, being in time. So anyway, Terence Malick, postcard version is, is a very intelligent, well-trained philosopher who has published uh, a translation of one of the greatest 20th century philosophers, Martin Heidegger, a German, um, and studied at two of the perhaps greatest philosophical schools at that time of the 20th century. So that's, but then he got into film. So after he left this, he got into film <laughs> and did a bunch of films from the 70s through 2020s and still working on those. Um, and he doesn't publish a lot. He doesn't do a lot of films. He does a couple a decade, basically. That's his thing. And that's why they're always loaded down with cameos because everyone wants to be in a a film. But that's just a background postcard thing you could say there. Some of the films, I guess you could talk about for the greater since you've seen more of these films than I have. I've seen a bunch of them, but not, not all of them. I think you have seen most of them. I have seen some of them. All right. So let's take a little trip then through the filmography. In the 1970s, he produced two films. Badlands and Days of Heaven, featuring such like actors as Richard Gere and Robert Redford. So if you're thinking at this point, I haven't heard mm. of this guy, you know, okay, so there we go. Those are some credentials. There are people in his movies that you may have heard of. But then it was really, I um, mean, after he took a long hiatus of something like 16 or 17 years, 
He came back onto the scene uh, with Thin Red Line, which I suspect would be the mm. first movie that many people will have heard of. Um, and there you get a feel for his distinctive style, which is, as you described, based on his background, very philosophical. So it's, it's rare that you'll watch a movie and in watching the movie, you'll hear the principal characters kind of do voiceovers of the movie itself. And it becomes almost as if the action is secondary to the philosophical musings, which are mm. portrayed uh, and also narrated for you. So he has this... Um, well, a, a kind of infinite patience for the art form itself, but also a real faith or credulity that the art form can conduct us into the type of questioning, which he thinks, or I think, which many people think is more substantive. Um, yeah, is more metaphysically thick. Uh, so those would be like the first few films. Uh, and then maybe, maybe you just describe for us a couple of the more recent ones that people will have heard of, or people will have heard of more. Sure. In in 2005, he did uh, the New World. I know nothing about. I know nothing about that. But then 2010s um, to 2011, people are probably familiar with the Tree of Life, which was Sean Penn again. He was in Thin Red Line. Uh, Brad Pitt. Um, a story of well, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll talk about this one. A kind of recapitulation of a family and yet the whole, and the entire creation of the universe uh, together. Um, and then uh, 2013, actually 2010s, kind of, you know, must have been harder for money or some decided let's rock. Did four films, which is basically the equivalent of his, his whole product before. Um, to the wonder, people familiar. Knight of Cups is bizarre, um, but that's kind of a that's Christian Bale in it and the love story that Natalie Portman. A bunch of uh, there's like six people and it's tarot, tarot cards and such. Uh, and then most recently, which our listeners are probably most familiar with or most interested with, in is A Hidden Life, the story of Franz Jägerstetter. Um, Jägerstetter, yeah. Uh, the, the Austrian, I think he's Austrian, uh, pacifist who um, w did not fight f for Hitler and was recently beatified. Uh, so that that story. And then 2020s, uh, I assume this air episode will be aired before this movie is published, but uh, he's working on one actually on the parables of Christ called uh, The Way of the Wind. Um, and there's not, not a lot of information on that as far as I can tell, but uh, he likes to keep his cards close to his chest. But that's sort of thing. So you people are probably familiar most with a uh, hidden life, um, the tree of life, I suspect, and uh, of course thin red line. That's my suspicion. But he's got, I mean, it's one of those. It's like a neat author where you could read his entire collection of works within a year or something. You could do a weekend and do all of Malik's pieces. You would be mind blown. But you could do it. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's spend a few minutes on three of the ones that. Our listeners will know best three ones that I think mm -hmm. that we're most interested in. So let's start with the thin red line. Um, did we watch that together or did I watch that with my family? I think I watched that with my family. Um, mm -hmm. So thin red yeah. line has a bunch of well-known actors, including Nick Nolte. You mentioned Sean Penn, uh, John Travolta and George Clooney are in it for like five seconds each. Adrian Brody. Yep. It was actually the film uh, that Jim Caviezel got his start in. So apparently Jim Caviezel showed up to tryouts or whatever you call tryouts in the film world. And on his car, he had a rosary hanging from the rearview mirror. Malik's wife is Catholic. She saw it, noticed it, mentioned it to Malik and said, give this guy a chance. And so he mm -hmm. walks in. He's got some talent. Malik gives him a part. Apparently in filming that movie, Malik shot something like, you know, 9, 10, 11, billions of hours of footage and then contracted it down to like a two and a half hour movie. And in the process of that editing, it becomes a movie mainly about Jim Caviezel, which wasn't evident from the start. And people like mm -hmm. John Travolta and George Clooney 
basically got mm. edited out of the film. He's actually edited actors out of films entirely. Like Marion Cotillard was was uh, cast for one of his parts, and then she just disappeared from the movie. Uh, so he doesn't play by the rules, but he plays by his own philosophical rules, and in so doing, mm -hmm. he makes beautiful things. So um, maybe just describe for us the thought world, or maybe the reality of the Thin Red Line. Why is it? Is it a war movie? If so, is it a good war mm. movie? How does it compare to the types of war movies that we're accustomed to watch, like Saving Private Ryan or like yeah. series like The Band of Brothers, things like that? Well, this is, I mean, yeah, this, so I, I Thin Red Line is just spectacular. Um, it's interesting, but it was released, there was a, a 90s, I think it was both in the 90s, where you got two basically similar movies, but one of them was really good, one of them was not as good on the same topic. So this happened with Magic. The Illusionist and The Prestige were released basically right next to each other. Um, and one of them you can watch once, and then the other one you can keep watching because it's so great. We'll let you decide which one that is. Uh, and then Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan, I think, were released in the same year, and ostensibly about roughly the same thing, World War II. Uh, obviously, uh, Saving Private Ryan's in the Western Front, um, and, and Thin Red Line is in the Eastern, so it's in Japan, dealing with the Pacific. Um, and what's interesting is the compare and contrast is that the Saving Private Ryan and perhaps the movies we're used to are really a are really character hero driven kind of movies. You have Tom Hanks and Save Private Ryan, and you know Matt Damon. I think is the guy's rescuing. I don't know. It's just yep. such a war hope movie. Um, wow. And so, it's a uh, no. It's bad, but one in comparison, right? It's like Hershey's chocolate is fantastic until you have Cadbury's chocolate, and then you only support Hershey's because it's American. Um, right. So, the most war movies we see are like character driven, and so there's a plot about things, but it's really about characters doing something. You could like remove all the background scenes and put it in different places. It's a bit like Shakespeare that you can you can make Hamlet work in like Nazi Germany or in modern England or in who knows when anything like the characters and their relations to each other in a sense are a really important part, and the kind of setting is just the setting, you know, which is beautiful, but it's still like you're following, you're always paying attention to the character first, and the background is background. In the sense of, there's the character and there's, and there's the world. But Malik has a switch on that. It's because, he's, it's because of Heidegger. It's because he spent all his time with uh, Heidegger's philosophy. That, for him, the characters are manifested amongst, as like, appearances in the background. So, you're, the real work is being done by the world setting. The kind of situation and such. And the characters are, are embedded in that, that background, such that if you pulled out the background, it wouldn't make any sense. The story wouldn't mean anything. C case in point, in Saving Private Ryan, the enemies are very clear. You've got Germans wandering around. Um, and so it's always clear about your... And so when the Germans aren't on screen, then you're not fighting them at the moment. But then other times you're kind of stabbing them individually. But in, save, in Thin Red Line, you don't see the Japanese for a long time. And yet you feel them. They're there. The, they're, 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 they're a part of this whole thing. Another case in point is the, the, the characters themselves. There are so many of them. And it's not, it doesn't feel like an overloaded Marvel movie where you have like everyone has to get in their own thing because it's really they're dragging it. It's rather the movie, the setting such itself, that world that's set up of a conflict of being away from home and trying to struggle against an enemy on, on the, in, in, in Japan, in the Pacific. That allows these characters to appear and disappear, to kind of come forward and to move back. And you don't feel like, I wonder where this guy is, because you're actually focused on the world itself, and these characters are negotiating their way in it, but they're not the focal point. That's a, that's, and that's a Heideggerian kind of, that we, we, existence comes to us, and we exist in it, uh, as opposed to 
us being individuals driving the story. It's interesting too, his, his movies afford his characters the opportunity to, enter, to entertain deeply human questions, but without doing it in a way that's overly didactic. So you might think, okay, because he's got these voiceovers and because you know, the characters mm. are heard to give expression to questions of a very kind of ponderous philosophical sort, you might think that it would be heavy handed, that it would be like a philosophy lecture, but it's not. Because the type of questions that they're asking are questions that we are all sometimes tacitly or you know, sometimes confusedly asking, like, what does it mean to be a human person? And the, and the types of answers that you get in the thin red line, um, they, they depend on the particular characters, uh, you know, by whom uh, they are posed, but also in their context, you know, given, given the obstacles that they have to overcome. So like there's some, there's some kind of freewheeling and dealing conversations between Jim Caviezel and Sean Penn's character. And apparently uh, the, the, the background to this or the setting to this is they filmed in the Solomon Islands. You know, it's, it takes place in the, the mm -hmm. context of the Battle of Guadalcanal. And uh, so Malik flew them all out and they were there for like a three and a half week party. And a lot of guys would go out and drink and enjoy themselves in the evening. But I think Jim Caviezel being a committed Catholic just wasn't as much into dissolution. And Sean Penn, I think, brought his family, brought his wife, at least. And so they just had like a lot of conversations and Sean Penn not being a believer, Jim Caviezel being a believer. Um, they got into interesting things. This has been recounted subsequently. And you see that enacted on the screen. There's some, there's some shots, like three, four minute shots where they're just kind of walking around in a circle outside of, you know, headquarter bungalow number two, and just kind of posing to each other, like what it means to live well. And each, you know, renders his own answer. You have, you know, Nick Nolte's character who wants to be a leader of men, but finds himself kind of incapable of doing so given certain character flaws. And then you have Storos, who wants to be a kind of savior figure. I mean, his very last name is Cross in Greek, mm -hmm. uh, but he's, he's kind of pitiably so because you realize he lacks the character to pull it off. And then Jim Caviezel is fleeing from death. And then this death iconography like just runs throughout the entire movie until such time as he realizes that it's only embracing the imminence of his death, that he's truly free to make a sacrifice, which is in fact life-giving for him, you know, for himself, not directly so, but mm -hmm. for all those, you know, with whom he are, with whom he is a kind of combatant in arms. And so they're posing these deep, these rich, these really awesome questions, but they're doing it in a way that's just so, yeah, it's so, it's so philosophical, you know, without being heavy handed or overly didactic. And I just, yeah, I gotta get, I gotta get pumped up about, uh, yeah, it, it's, about well, that it's, way. I think it's, I think part of it, it, it draws you into the world. You're drawn into this sort of thing where if you're in a, you know, it's like, if you just come up to someone and say, Hey, what's the meaning of life? And a random conversation. It's like, I don't have any background context. I don't want to talk to you. You're weird. You know, but it, you know, if you're at a, if you're at a place and you're, you know, you're having coffee or something, you're sitting down it's after a nice meal or the, the situations presents itself such that these sort of questions can be asked at the end of a meal and dinner with friends or something like you're allowed to go places that you might not otherwise go. Uh, and his movies have that kind of setup where you it doesn't feel, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel forced or anything like that. You just, it's the natural time that you want to ask good questions about, about, you know, what is the light and that kind of stuff that he does sort of thing. Um, Boom. All right. Well, we're about halfway through, so let's take our break. And on the other side, we'll talk about tree of life and a hidden life. It'll be a life themed second half of the episode. So stick with us. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support.
All right, welcome back to God's Planning. We're talking about Terrence Malick and film, uh, specifically uh, two of his best known or greatest films, Tree of Life here and A Hidden Life. So let's let's dive right into Tree of Life. As a background, the movie begins with a quotation from Job 38, I think. I think that's true, uh, which is that part in the book of Job where after having had questions posed to him first by three interlocutors and then by a fourth as to um, the reason for which he's being punished and Job continues to maintain his innocence and then eventually having posed all of these questions before God, God shows up in the whirlwind and then asks deeper questions still, um, specifically questions concerning human suffering and the place of that human suffering in the world. Then we are introduced into a story of a family uh, with a kind of hard-nosed father, a very tender and affectionate mother, three boys that are kind of figuring out what it means to be members of this family and to love each other. And then you're, you're introduced pretty quickly into the story to the fact that one of them has died. The middle child has died in a war. And so then it's a way of unpacking uh, their love or unpacking the meaning uh, of this devastation by living their lives, uh, by kind of setting that before the Lord, by interpreting it as Job does in light of creation. So there's these, again, these really cool philosophical themes that come through. Uh, I don't know, what do you find to be the most, well, maybe not the most, but what do you find about that story that's especially provocative or especially good? Well, I think it's, um, I'm going to be waxing philosophically, philosophically again, um, obviously one of one of Heidegger's big themes or big writers uh, that he read was Soren Kierkegaard. Um, and Kierkegaard talks a lot about recapitulation and repetition, you could say. And not repetition in the sense of mere repeating, but he means repetition in the sense of like representing the same thing in new light, that that's what, what life is about. Um, and we could call, we'd call this like typology if you're reading scriptures, such that things in the earlier parts of, of the Bible appear later in their fullest light now that they've been revealed as being projections or prophecies about Christ in particular ways. So he recapitulates Moses, this kind of thing. Um, and what's, in, what's neat, neat about that, that movie to me is that, again, the setting of the world, the recapitulization of that Sean Penn's character, one of the one of the sons, is thinking he's, he's working through what his life, what how he's got to this point with his death and and dealing with his 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 past. And you're always doing flashbacks, um, but you're not just flashing back to his childhood, so that he's kind of reliving that in a way, recapitulating his own experience. But you're you're always flashing back to like creation, such that there's this, I mean, there's dinosaurs, there's stuff happening, and it's recapitulating, and and such that. You're in a bigger. It turns out that the the notion is that you're in the bigger story here. I mean, that's the story in the sense that's what Job's story is that you're part of a bigger story. You just think that you're the main actor here, but you're not. And Malik, I think, does a beautiful job of of telling that Jobian kind of perspective that you're a part of a bigger story here, and your job is to see yourself and embrace your situation in that, which includes some bad elements bad actors, bad things that have happened that you have no c control over, his, particularly his father's relationship with them. Um, and yet you can move in and through this thing and find hope and find some kind of peace, but not like a silly peace. You don't end the movie with, because he spent a lot of time just reflecting in his office, I think. Um, not a silly piece, but a kind of a, a real recognition of, of what's, what's important and your role in that. Yeah, I think there... I mean, what, one of the keys to discerning what it is that you're made for, the place that you occupy in the world, is a kind of understanding or an appreciation of your own fragility. So, you know, you see this father character who's, who's a little bit brutal, you know, he's a little bit macho, and he takes his anger out on his family. And you can see that his family in part lives in fear. 
Um, and and the, the, the movie begins with the mother narrating these two ways set before her children, the way of nature and the way of grace. And the father is kind of a type of nature and she's kind of a type of grace insofar as she's forgiving, she's merciful, she's tender, she's a kind of refuge for them, a safe haven. Uh, she represents a space in which they can be their true selves and they don't have to be hardened or calloused against the depredations of the world. Um, but you also see like the father come to an appreciation of his own fragility, especially, you know, his, his work situation is a little bit tenuous. Um, and then you see the oldest son, you know, who is portrayed by maybe like a 12 year old boy for most of the movie, but it was Sean Penn grown up. And you, you see him kind of weighing as it were the different, the different, I don't know, manners in which to conduct his life, the way of nature, the way of grace. Is he doomed or destined to become like his father because he's more like his father than he is like his mother, whereas the middle son is more like his mother than he is like his father. Is it just a matter of determinism? Is it just a matter of our playing out what inexorably need be done? And mm -hmm. I think that it, as a result of which it makes the question of human freedom again, really, really urgent uh, and, and really, really beautiful. Uh, I shouldn't say really, really back to back sentences because four reallys and two sentences is a little bit overwrought. But um, and I think that as, as you know, I've mentioned with respect to the last movie, they find a kind of freedom and sacrifice. So there's this beautiful iconic scene where the mother, uh, there's, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to capture exactly what's going on. But my interpretation is you see her as a younger woman, you see her in her present state, you see her as an older woman, and, and each mm -hmm. of them kind of lifts her hands uh, as she says repeatedly, I give you my son, I give you my son, I give you my son. There's a sense that, yeah, we're made to be, you know, possessed and to possess others, to be in relationships, but in a way that, that possesses as if not possessing without like the strange sense of detachment or without this, I don't know, like um, uh, apathy towards those whom we love dear, but with the recognition that everything that we have received is a gift, is a grace, and that we mm -hmm. offer it back in kind. And you see that so beautifully portrayed in a way that again, not heavy handed, not didactic, very artistic, but it leaves you as an interpreter free in a certain sense uh, to make your own way through that story, which is, which is really magnificent. First time I watched that movie, I felt like I'd been on a retreat. Uh, I woke up the mm -hmm. next morning. I was just, yeah, I was just renewed, refreshed, delighted indeed. I mean, you know, there's some scenes yeah. of like dinosaur mercy, which can be a little bit precious, but Hey, you take the good with the bad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, I, I always have to remind myself of these, the movies weren't, the movies aren't designed for Dominicans to be watching them. Um, it's got a wider audience or appeal. Um, but his movies are pretty come pretty close to uh you know yeah his movies and Michael Bay movies are pretty much right on target for us so <laughs> all right here we go last movie let's round out the scoring with a hidden life we watched this together in our in our backyard um, yeah COVID and, uh, co yeah that's right a little little what were we doing quarantine yeah quarantine movie watching yeah um, this movie is long this movie is unlike any other saint story that you have seen portrayed mm -hmm. on the silver screen uh, what's it doing what's it about yeah, this is. Uh, this should be go. This should be a whole episode. I don't know. We should ask. We should. We should have a guest explaining with some Catholic director or something. And how? Why is it impossible to make good saints movies? You know why? Why? Why is it impossible to make good? I know everyone has their favorites. Whatever. Um. But I mean, there are so many of them that are just like, oh, there. And I think that I think you've touched on it. The didacticism, right? There's a sort of over the top clubbing ability, such that you you're not really watching a movie. And most saints movies, you're just like you're being told some things you should do. But just in the in the in the guise of of people's characters, and that doesn't strike me as what saints' lives are about. But this one, so yeah, we'll see about we'll see how the way of the wind works. But a hidden life, 
uh, Franz Jägerstetter, Austrian, um, and uh, it's a, he's a farmer. It's a story about a marriage. It's about a life. Uh, and again, it's not about, like, I mean, this is about a guy, but this is malicified, so that it's it's not really just about him. You're drawn into this, and it's about this world and this little village and those people, how everyone's responding to him. He's so he's he's a pacifist. He, I mean, he he signs up for the army, but he's not going to he's not going to carry a weapon to fight with these. He doesn't believe in Hitler's um, program, and so he's a conscientious objector. And so uh, this creates at first, you know, there's tension. People are okay, but as the war goes on and such, it, it becomes clear that you're going to have to either either fight or go to jail and be starved. Um, and so he chooses the latter. And and the beautiful part, beautiful part about it is is it. The movie doesn't just focus on him and his, like, you know, Thomas More kind of stance, but, like, the effects it has on everyone around. So his wife and their and their, their family, like, how people treat her in relations, such that sanctity, like, true holiness, has an effect that is both good and bad on people around, because people get to choose how they respond to it, you know? So the, the mayor of the town and the people in the town can choose to feel condemned or the, or by, by his sanctity and therefore can take that out on his, on his wife, who you think this is just the most evil thing. She has nothing to do with this, but it's, it's the fact that everyone's enmeshed in this. So it's a beautiful story about, about um, this holy man who, because of conscience, uh, decides not to fight for the Nazi regime uh, and, and the effects of that and the kind of struggles that he and his wife and his family and the people in the town and everyone has to be engaged in with this issue of, of being faithful and being, being uh, holy to the Lord's commandments. Yeah, and I think that idea, you know, there's no cheap grace or there's no easy sanctity comes through in a really powerful fashion. I think sometimes we get in the habit of repeating certain truisms. It's not that they're not true that I describe them as such, but um, we, we get in the habit of repeating certain truisms without weighing them um, or without feeling how very burdensome they can be in the context of a real human life. So like, for instance, you know, you talk about monastic life as especially efficacious because, you know, monasteries are the power plants of Christendom. But for somebody in a monastery, for the family of somebody who enters a monastery, it doesn't feel like that, right? It doesn't feel like the mm -hmm. most efficacious thing in the world. I like to say that, you know, my becoming, my becoming a Dominican is basically good for everyone except for my family. <laughs> And, you know, our pious kind of reflex response is like, oh, no, it is good for your family because the merits that you gain by virtue of this life to which you have exceeded end up being, you know, like or redound to their glory as well. And, you know, yada, yada. And that's but like we won't necessarily see that. Maybe we'll see it in heaven. But I don't know if heaven will be like that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if heaven will just kind of set us all at ease in a final reckoning wherein we see that everything that we did was for the good. And we're all supposed to be reconciled to that in a kind of serene way. Now, I think that like life is just a lot more anguished. And I think that all grace costs. It doesn't only cost you, it costs other people. And in costing other people, it costs you the more. And you mm. see that come through. And maybe, I don't know to what extent that's actually true to form from the man's life. I heard he was, he right. was kind of more swaggering than the movie made him out to be. You know, driver of yes. a motorcycle, drinker of many beers, kind of, you know, yeah, kind of, kind of a tough. Um, and I heard that his wife was not nearly as anxious about his choice to uh yeah to decline the oath of fidelity as she's made out to be in the movie right but still you know our saying yes to the lord uh, means that we'll come in for persecution you know that we'll have to withstand trial and that it means that everyone else in our life will be touched by that and yeah i think it's you who often repeat that stanley Hauerwas said that if you believe that something is true you have to be willing to let other people suffer for it 
you know, you can't protect other mm -hmm. people from the realities which break upon us in the context of a life consecrated to God. It's just like, we're going to suffer. You know, that's just part of the deal. Uh, but picking up the pieces will entail serious, serious difficulty. Um, and I think the movie really captures yes. that in a way that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a bit like we talked about in one of our Dostoevsky episodes, I th our Dostoevsky episode, I think, about the idiot. And the beautiful thing, the, the, his book, The Idiot, is that Prince Mishkin is kind of a Christ figure, and he shows up in these people's lives. And in a sense, he makes their lives better because he lets them see truth and beauty and, and, and things. But in another sense, he ruins their lives, you know, um, that it, 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 he, because you have to respond to, when you, res you respond to grace, when grace appears, and whether it be in the form of, of, of this man or this woman or this life, um, there has to be a response. And there's no like, eh, shrug shoulders, you know, there's not, you can't be apathetic to the operations of grace. You either reject it or you accept it in these various ways. I think that's the story that Dostoevsky, and I think that's what um, Malik is trying to say here, which I think is I, probably right, um, that uh, grace and sin, not to get too Lutheran or dialectic here, um, have this relationship to each other such that they're always present. There's no like neutral kind of a territory, but rather when grace shows up in someone's life, um, it means that there'll be responses to it that might not be good. People might not like that aspect. You might not like your aspect when you sh when grace appears in your own life, um, and it causes it, it. It's not just like oh, on Sundays now I pray in this way, but actually changes these other parts of my life. My story kind of changes now, and part of it actually is really bad. Um, this it's, I mean, it can be bad and it can be disappointing and it can actually ruin people. I mean, this is Evelyn Waugh, for instance, um, and Brideshead. I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk about him at some point. Um, this is the story of Brideshead, as far as I'm concerned. Is this similar to the operations of grace and the kind of incredible damage it does, you know? But a good damn, I mean, a damage <laughs> that is a necessary damage, you yeah. know, because of sinfulness. That's just oh, how it yeah. goes. All right. Well, with that, uh, we've we've kind of reached the end. Uh, certainly, we've reached our time. So thanks so much for having tuned into this episode of God's Planning. Uh, please do like, share, and comment. Get the word out so that others. Uh, can join the conversation and uh, yeah, get involved in the community. Thanks to all those who support us on Patreon. We're super grateful. It makes it possible. It makes it better. Um, and yeah, further up and further in. And um, yeah, uh, just a quick reminder that we continue to have guests on twice a month. Uh, so first and third Monday, and then we continue to have live streams twice a month on second and fourth Friday. We're going to take a little pause with some of that programming uh, during Advent and Christmas because we're going to have uh, weekend episodes where we do Lexio to being on the Sunday reading so as to not overwhelm you with content. And that'll just kind of be the rhythm going forward uh, when we come to, to Lent and Easter as well. So you can look for that uh, and, uh, and, and stay tuned as things come up on your feed. Uh, so our prayers are for you. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on God's Planning. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.